Well, good morning, church. We doing okay? All right. Um, we're going to be in Exodus chapter 20, verses 3 through 5 this morning. This will be our main text, but as we walk through this message, I will be quoting countless amount of Scripture because, honestly, there is no better resource to talk about any subject except for the absolute truth of God's Word. Amen? All right. So, this morning we're going to be talking about idols. And this is a hard sermon to preach. It is a little weighty. And so, as I was preparing, my wife told me that I should start off with a joke in order to kind of loosen us up, lighten us up a little bit, get us prepared. So, here's a joke. There was an elderly woman that had just returned home from a Wednesday night service at church, and she was startled by an intruder in her home. As she caught the man in the act of robbing her and taking all of her valuables, she yelled, Stop! Acts 2.38, which in Scripture is when Peter tells people to repent of their sin. The burglar stopped dead in his tracks, and the woman calmly called the police and explained what she had done. As the officers cuffed the man and take him in, he asked the burglar, Man, why'd you just stop? Why'd you just stand there? All she did was quote scripture to you. And he said, Scripture? That woman said she had an axe and two 38s. <laughs> that landed a little better than I thought. Thank you, Chelsea. Um, so, whether you're laughing at the joke or laughing at me, either way, we have a laugh and we're loosened up this morning. Um, but as I said, we're going to be talking about idols, and this is a weighty message. And so, if at any time in this message you get uncomfortable, just know, me too. As I was preparing this this week, the Holy Spirit was kicking my can all over the place. And so, we are going to get in this together, but know this, that when conviction of the Lord comes, I've never heard it described as a warm, fuzzy blanket. It can get uncomfortable. And so I also stand up here today to let you know that I am a broken, black-hearted sinner just like anybody else, and so we're in this together, okay? So let's dive right in. Um, I'm going to pray, and we'll get the Scripture. Lord, I pray that as we dive into your Word and we begin to wrestle with some hard truth this morning, that you just speak loudly. Our ears are open, and our hearts are open, and you allow the Holy Spirit to get into the dark corners of our life, bring conviction, and I pray this morning you change lives because that is what we're here for, Lord, is for you to come into our lives and change us for the better. In Jesus' name, amen. All right, so we're going to be in Exodus chapter 20, verse 3 through 5. I believe it will be on the screen. And it says this, Thou shalt have no other gods before me. Thou shalt not make unto thee any graven image or any likeness of anything that is in heaven above or that is in the earth beneath or that is in the water underneath the earth. Thou shalt not bow down thyself to them nor serve them. For I, the Lord thy God, am a jealous God, visiting the iniquities of the fathers upon the children until the third and fourth generation of them who hate me. Now, it says you shall have no other gods before me. I feel like our society has become flippant 
with this command. I feel like we have desensitized ourselves to this truth in God's word, the first command of the Ten Commandments. We have made the Ten Commandments a banner in which we wave. Our society, it's a cornerstone that we have built our society on. Our money is inscribed in God we trust. Our anthem says one nation under God. We say it, but do our lives actually live it? In Matthew chapter 15, verse 8, Jesus himself said this, This people honors me with their lips, but their hearts are far from me. You see, with our mouths we worship an almighty God, but with our actions we worship idols. If God himself was to come down and give, our, give us or give you a spiritual audit of your life, what would the results show? Where would your time, your finances, and your resources be allocated? The plain and simple question we must ask ourselves this morning is this. What have we made idols in our lives? Now, this is an intrusive question. This is a question that honestly we would probably like to avoid at all costs because we don't know how deep that hole is once we start down it. The truth is, I just don't think we realize how far we have drifted from this command. In the Hindu religion, there are 33 primary gods that they worship. And I would venture to say that on any given day, the average American Christian can compete with that. Just have something happen that affects our comfortability. Have something that just kind of throws our life a little out of, out of balance. And watch how our attitudes, our words, and our perspective on life changes just like that. What if the air conditioner goes out? What if our coffee is spilled in the morning? What if our vehicle breaks down or, God forbid, our phone quits working? If our immediate response is, I have to have it or I need it, it has probably become an idol in our life. And in the perspective of the world, millions of people go without those very things I listed every single day. So, what are some idols in our lives? Well, to be honest with you, there's no way I could list every idol that we worship on a daily basis. There's just too many of them. But I did narrow it down to one core idol that I believe that all other idols branch out of. And it is the idol of self. We worship at the altar of self every day. And somehow we have turned the truth of Scripture that is all about God into a me-centric gospel that is predicated on what we want rather than what God has commanded us to do. This idol of self can be broken into six categories. Well, I've broken it down into six categories. It could probably be broken down into a hundred, hundred more. And they all begin with this one word, my. My name, my tradition, my family, my money, my time, and my rights. So let me ask you a question. Why do you call yourself a Christian? Is it solely to bring glory to the name of God, or is it because everybody else around you in your community just calls themselves Christian, and so you just don't want to be the odd one out? If your claim of Christianity is more about your identity and how people view you, then maybe you have it wrong. Because honestly, the identity of the Christian is solely about the glory of God and bringing glory to the name of Jesus. 
There's an account in the Gospel of Mark that I find very countercultural to the average or modern evangelical American church. And in Mark chapter 6, starting in verse 7, we see Jesus sending out the 12, 12 apostles. And in verse 7, it says this, And he, being Jesus, and Jesus called the twelve and began to send them out two by two, and he gave them authority over unclean spirits. You skip ahead to verse 12, and it says this, So when they went out and proclaimed that people should repent, and they cast out many demons and anointed with oil many who were sick and healed them, King Herod heard of it, for Jesus' name had become known. Whose name did Herod hear of? Jesus. Now think about that for a minute. Twelve dudes, twelve individual dudes with individual names got given the gift to cast out demons and heal the sick and went out into the world and performed all these miracles and the only name that Herod heard was Jesus. So I ask again, whose name are you seeking to have heard? In our modern evangelical system, it has been made more about the influencer, the best communicator, the show, and the lights, or even the name of the church and its organization. Whose name are you representing when you call yourself a Christian? Let me ask you this. What if 12 men from Liberty Baptist Church got sent out into the community of Franklin County with the power to cast out demons and heal the sick and perform miracles? Whose name do you think the community of Franklin County would hear. Listen, church, what we do here in the ministry we supply in this community of Franklin County is not about us individually, and it's not about the prosperity and name of Liberty Baptist Church. It is about the glorification of the name that is above all names, and that name is Jesus. Whose name are people going to hear? This brings me to the next idol, the idol of tradition. Now, this is a major idol inside our churches today. Churches have split. Relationships in the body of Christ have been damaged. And God's holy name has been drugged through the mud because we would much rather hold on to our tradition than follow the movement of the Lord in our lives. In Exodus 13, we see God delivering the Israelite people out of bondage and slavery in Egypt. They had been enslaved for roughly 430 years. That is, 21 generations. And in verse 21 of chapter 13 of Exodus, it says this, And the Lord went before them by day in a pillar of cloud to lead them along the way, and by night in a pillar of fire to give them light, that they may travel by night. So what we see here is the presence of the Lord before the Israelite people, and he is leading them, and they are following him by day and by night. And then he brings them to the edge of the Red Sea, and they're kind of like, okay, what now? And they turn around and look, and they see that Pharaoh and his army are bearing down on them. And what do they do? In verse 10 and 11 of Exodus chapter 14, it says this, When Pharaoh drew near, the people of Israel lifted up their eyes, and behold, the Egyptians were marching after them, and they feared greatly. And the people of Israel cried out to the Lord, and they said to Moses, is it because there are no graves in Egypt that you have taken us away to die in the wilderness? What have you done to us bringing us out of Egypt? What the Israelite people are saying is that they would rather stay in their bondage and their tradition of enslavement to Egypt. What their heart is screaming in this moment is that they would rather die in their tradition 
of staying in Egypt and dying in bondage to Egypt and Pharaoh than follow the movement of the Lord. A major misconception is that following the movement of the Lord is going to be easy. That it's going to be all rainbows and unicorns. But the reality is following the movement of the Lord is often uncomfortable, challenging, and it requires change. In our day and age, churches are dying and closing their doors every year because I firmly believe it's because they've decided they would rather die in their comfortable tradition than follow the movement of the Lord. Now, let's make it personal. Because I was talking about a church as a whole. Let's make it personal. Are you in your own life going to follow the movement of the Lord wherever He says go, whenever He says to go do it? Or are we going to die in our traditions? Next is the idol of family. Jesus said in Luke chapter 14, verse 26, if anyone comes to me, listen to this, this this is tough. If anyone comes to me and does not hate his own father and mother and wife and children and brothers and sisters, yes, even his own life, he cannot be my disciple. What Jesus is saying here is that God alone should be primary in our lives. Some of you here today have not followed the movement of the Lord in your life because you have valued your family and their opinion more than God's calling on your life. You have valued their opinion, their thoughts, and their comments than what God has told you to go do. Do we value God and what He has called us to do above all else? What is, it, what is the cost of following Jesus? Well, in Luke chapter 9, 59 through 62, Jesus lays this out very plainly. He said this, Jesus speaking, said, To another he said, Follow me. But he said, Lord, let me first go bury my father. And Jesus said to him, Leave the dead to bury their own dead. But as for you, go proclaim the kingdom of God. Yet another said, I will follow you, Lord, but first let me go say farewell to those that are at my home. And Jesus said to him, no one who puts his hand to the plow and looks back is fit for the kingdom of God. These men in Luke 9 were harboring idols in their hearts for their family. And Jesus said, no one who puts their hand to the plow and looks back is fit for the kingdom of God. Several months ago, I was listening to the Christian radio. And a testimony came on that put my stomach in knots. This young lady was saying that her grandmother had passed away and she greatly missed her. This young lady was not a Christian at the time, but at her grandmother's funeral, she was distraught and a pastor came over to console her and she said, said this to the pastor, I'm never going to see my grandmother again, am I? The pastor then proceeded to tell her that all she had to do to see her grandmother again was to pray a prayer for Jesus to save her. She ended her entire testimony this way. I am so excited I will get to see my grandmother again. As my stomach turned, two thoughts immediately ran through my head. The first is the treasure of her heart was her grandmother, not God. And Exodus 20 verse 5 says that God is a jealous God. And I'm here to tell you he will not share a millimeter of his throne with anything or anyone. See, the desire of her heart was her grandmother instead of Jesus. Her grandmother was an idol in her life. 
All she cared about was seeing her grandmother again. And she had made Jesus' death on the cross a stepping stool to try and attain her own fleshly desires. The second thing I thought was shame on that pastor for using a moment like this to spiritually manipulate someone like this young lady and falsely present the gospel of Jesus Christ. Because the truth is, Jesus did not die so that we could have it our way, nor to be used as a stepping stool for us to gain our own fleshly desires. Jesus died so that by the unfathomable grace of God, we can be reconciled back to the Father, we can be clothed in righteousness, and then we can stand forever and say, holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty. But see, this is how sneaky the enemy is. This is how sneaky the devil is. He plays on our emotions and he pulls at our heartstrings. His half-truths and his slight twisting of God's word is how he has and will continue to deceive generation after generation. Are we putting God first or are we making him play second fiddle to the ones we call family? The devil is crafty. Be careful where you allow your heart to drift. Next on my list is money. My money. Now this is a sensitive subject inside the church. No one likes it when a preacher talks about money. And I can kind of feel the restlessness starting to happen. Maybe that is because we have made money an idol in our life. If you get irritated or uneasy when money is preached about, if you do not like someone telling you what to do with your money, then you would not like Jesus coming to preach because he spoke about money a lot. I have heard it said from many a pulpit and from church stages that our tithes and offerings are our gift back to God. And to be honest with you, I just think that's a crazy statement. It makes no sense to me. And let me put it this way to kind of bring home the point. Let's say I need a truck to haul some things and you have one. So you come to me and you're like, hey, use mine. You can use my truck. So I use your truck, and I have it for about a month, and then you call me up, and you're like, hey, I'm going to need my truck back. And my response to you is, my gift back to you is that you can use it on Sundays. You would look at me like I was crazy. You would look at me like I had lost my mind because I'm dictating to you when and how you can use your own truck. But is this not how we view our money when it comes to God? We can't gift something back to God that is already His. Do we not realize that every dollar, every asset, every financial blessing that we have is directly from the hands of God? And it is not given to us for our benefit. It is given to us for His glory. When God gives us a blessing, He does not relinquish ownership of it. It is given to us on a loan, and He can take it back whenever He well pleases in Mark chapter 12, verses 41 through 44, we see Jesus sitting and watching people bring their tithes and offerings to the temple. And in verse 41, it says this, And he, being Jesus, sat down opposite of the treasury and watched the people putting money into the offering box. Many rich people put in large sums, and a poor widow came and put in two small copper coins, which make a penny. And he called his disciples to him and said to them, Truly I say to you, this poor widow has put more than all those who are contributing to the offering box. For, all, for they all contributed out of their abundance, but she, out of her poverty, has put everything she had. 
all she had to live on. She gave everything. And that is the call of the Christian, to surrender all that we have to be utilized by God. What we have to accept is that everything is God's and it is given to us to steward for his glory, not our own. With every dollar we make, with every asset we own, with every blessing from God, the question we must ask ourselves is this, how can this be used for the glory of the king? But see, the devil is cunning and he whispers lies into our ears. And the biggest mistake we can make is believing the lie from the devil that we deserve that. We deserve that job, or we deserve that pay raise, or we deserve that promotion. We deserve that house or vehicle or boat or vacation. It's my money and I deserve to use it how I want to. But according to scripture, the only thing that we deserve in this life is death and eternal damnation. So when it comes to your finances and your assets, how are you using them to bring glory to his holy name? Just a quick fact before I reach, go to the next one. If you can reach in your pocket, flip over your couch cushions, or you can scrounge through your full board of your car and find 75 cents, you are in the top 1% of the world's wealth. How are you using the resources and blessings you've been given to bring glory to his name? Next is my time. Now, Chelsea and I, my wife, were recently having a discussion about time and how much we are spending on our phones. Unfortunately, your phone will track how much time you spend on it, and it will give you a report. If you want an eye-opening experience, read that report. Or you could be like me and just ignore it, and then your wife tells you to look at it, and it's not good. Now, some of you may be sitting here saying, well, I don't spend much time on my phone, and that may be true, but you do spend your time somewhere. In work, hobbies, projects, youth sports, eating, get-togethers with family and friends. In our conversation, my wife Chelsea brought up that it is so easy to say that we don't have time to get into God's Word, but it is so easy to pick up that phone and start scrolling. We say we don't have time to read God's Word or spend time with Him in prayer, but we do anything and everything we can to rearrange our lives for that hobby, that youth sporting event, that Georgia football game that's coming up this Saturday. Where are we spending the majority of our time and how are we spending that time? How does the time we spend reflect on the idols of our heart? Now listen, I love deer hunting. It is a passion of mine. But when I was in college, it became an idol. I was obsessed. Every spare moment of my life was thinking about, dreaming about, talking about, or doing hunting. It got so bad that when Chelsea and I were dating, she, well, when we started dating, she said, I'll date you, but hunting will never come before me. One Christmas in college, I was at my parents' house, and my dad had put a letter in my stocking, and I can't remember the full extent of the letter, but I do remember this one line because it imprinted on my soul. He said, son, make sure you are worshiping the creator and not his creation." My entire moment-by-moment -moment life in college was consumed by deer hunting. It had become an idol in my life, and everything else was in second place. See, the issue, though, is not in the activities in which we spend our time, but when they become primary in our lives, and when we begin to prioritize them over God, they do become idols. What about church? 
Are you making time in your life for church? Now, y'all are here this morning, and that's a good thing. In Hebrews 10.25, Scripture tells us not to neglect the gathering of the body of Christ. Are you prioritizing time for church? Or if you had a hard day on Saturday, you just don't get out of bed and make it. Or if you have too much to do on Sunday, you decide to not come to church and go do those things. Or maybe you roll out of bed and you look outside and it's too cold, too wet, or too hot. What excuses are you making not to come to church? Parents, are you setting an example to your kids of how important it is to be in church? It is vital that the body of Christ comes together and encourages one another. We are called the body of Christ. That is the analogy. That is the picture that Jesus brings in the Bible for who we are. And if a leg gets disconnected from the body, it does not take long for it to begin to rot, stink, and turn rancid. If you claim the name of Christ, you should be in church, being connected to the body of Christ. Now, the beauty of sharing the gospel is it does not have to be done inside the church. Actually, Jesus' command to us in Matthew 28 is go, therefore, and make disciples, not stay and make disciples. And so you can share Christ inside your life, at work, in a meeting, in a deer stand, on an athletic field, or in your living room this Saturday while you watch the Georgia game. Those are platforms that God has given you to spread his word, and it's perfectly fine to enjoy those things. But what it is in our lives is a perspective shift. Instead of focusing solely on those, we focus on how every moment, every time, every activity is an opportunity to share the love of Jesus and bring glory to his name. We have to look no further than how Jesus modeled for us in his life and his ministry here on earth. He did not negotiate with his time with the Father. We constantly see Jesus retreating to be alone with God. Are we making our time with him a priority? Last on the list is my rights. Now this is probably the most American idol to ever be worshipped. We love our rights. The problem we face today in the American church is that we would much rather fight for our rights than fight for the forward movement of the gospel of Jesus Christ. A few years back, there was a baker that was arrested for not baking a cake for a particular couple that was clearly not living a biblical lifestyle. You may remember this story. When it first started, honestly, I was proud of the baker for her standing on her convictions of biblical truth. Even as she was arrested, she did not waver, and she kept herself together and went peaceably. But quickly, politicians and media began to get involved, and interviews quickly went from representing biblical truth and who Jesus was to, to fighting for her rights and her own civil liberties. When she was released from jail, she walked out on the courthouse steps to the song, Eye of the Tiger, blaring over the loudspeakers, cheering that her American rights had been upheld. My question is this, how does that bring those that are far from God closer to him? If anything, it was a big shove in the wrong direction. See, what started as an opportunity to shine Jesus in the dark places of this world turned into a spectacle in which showed the whole world that we would rather fight for our rights than fight and show the love of Jesus and suffer for his name. 
The American church is allergic to suffering for the name of Christ. We avoid it at all costs, and we do everything in our power to not let it happen. It's just like my five-year-old son when I tell him to clean up his toys or eat his vegetables. He'll lay on the floor and whine. He'll pitch fits. He tries to negotiate, claiming that somehow it's not fair. He finds every excuse in the book not to do it. And that is exactly how we interact with God when he asks us to suffer for the name of Christ. But scripture is full of verses that tell us that suffering is a vital and integral part of the life of a Christian. It's all over the Bible, but if you need a quick reference, just turn to 1 Peter. 1 Peter 2.20 says, But if, if when you do good and suffer for it, you endure. This is a gracious thing in the sight of God. 1 Peter 3.14, But even if you should suffer for righteousness' sake, you will be blessed. 1 Peter 4.16, If anyone suffers as a Christian, let him not be ashamed, but let him glorify God in the name. 1 Peter 5.10, And after you have suffered a little while, the God of all grace who has called you to this eternal glory in Christ will himself restore, confirm, strengthen, and establish you. Now, we are blessed here in America, and we are honored to have rights that allow us to gather in fellowship in the name of Jesus. And I think we should use those rights and those privileges afforded to us to make a difference in this world. But when push comes to shove, what are you going to fight for? Are you going to fight for, for your rights or for the forward movement of the gospel? Why are churches in the nation with the most religious freedom in the world losing ground year after year? Maybe it's because our focus is in the wrong place. I have three examples from Scripture I want to share. And then the first one is the story of Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. It's in Daniel chapter 3. Now Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego is being accused of not bowing down before King Nebuchadnezzar's golden image. And when confronted by Nebuchadnezzar, they respond like this in verse 16 and 18. Now, mind you, they were guilty. Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego answered and said to the king, O Nebuchadnezzar, we have no need to answer you in this matter. If this be so, our God, whom we serve, is able to deliver us from the burning, fiery furnace, and he will deliver us out of your hand, O king. But if not, be it be known to you, O king, that we will not serve your gods or worship the golden image that you have set up. Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego did not fight for their rights. They rested on the promises of God that he would rescue them, even if that meant through death. In Daniel chapter 6, we see Daniel being brought before the king because he was praying to God, which had been decreed punishable by death, being thrown into the lion's den. And in verse 10 of, chapter, verse 10 of Daniel chapter 6, we see how Daniel handled it when that decree was sent out. It says this, when Daniel knew that the document had been signed, he went to his house where he had windows in the upper chamber open toward Jerusalem. He got down on his knees three times a day and prayed and gave thanks before his God as he had done previously. See, Daniel did not call his local politician. He did not go picket the capital. 
He did not start a political campaign on social media that told all of Babylon that his rights had been revoked or changed or, or expunged or had been violated. It says that when he knew the document was signed, he went to his house, got on his knees, and prayed and gave thanks before God as he had done previously. Lastly, we see Jesus before the religious council as they look to crucify him. They were falsely accusing him, and the high priest stood up and asked Jesus, have you no answer to make what these men testify against you? And in verse 63 of Matthew 26, it says, but Jesus remained silent. He was then brought before Pilate in Matthew chapter 27, verses 11 through 14. And it says, now Jesus stood before the governor, and the governor asked him, are you the king of the Jews? And Jesus said, you have said so. But when he was accused by the chief priests and elders, he gave no answer. Then Pilate said to him, do you not hear how many things they testify against you? But he gave no answer, not even to a single charge, so that the governor was greatly amazed. Now listen, church, if anyone if anyone in the history of mankind, in the history of the world, had the opportunity and the right to fight for his rights, to set the record straight, and to prove his innocence, it was Jesus in this moment. Yet he chose to fight for you and for me. Instead of fighting for his innocence, he chose to be beaten, mocked, spit on, and tortured on the cross until death for our salvation. Exodus 14, 14, going all the way back to as the Israelites stand before the Red Sea and Pharaoh is coming down on them and they are complaining with everything they have of what have you done to us. Moses' response is, he the Lord will fight for you. You only have to be silent. Church, a day will come when a document will be signed that will make serving God and gathering in his name a criminal offense. When that day comes, are you going to idolize your rights and your freedoms and waste time fighting for your right to worship, or are you just going to worship? Just worship. Go to your house, get on your knees, and pray and give thanks before God just like it was any other Tuesday because the power is in His holy name. When they came to arrest Jesus at the garden, Jesus asked, who were they looking for? And they said, we're looking for Jesus of Nazareth. And he said, it is I, I am he. And then it says that the Roman soldiers and the entire council fell on the ground because the power is in the name, the name above all names, the matchless and mighty name of Jesus, not in our rights. The fact of the matter is the mass majority of Christians in our world today live in hostile countries that it is punishable by death to praise the name of Jesus. They have no rights. They have no religious freedoms. And the gospel is exploding in their parts of the world. The good news of the gospel and its power is not predicated on God's people having rights and freedoms to live their Christian life. And if history tells us anything, it's that the gospel hits harder, reaches further, and spreads faster in the face of persecution when religious freedoms are non-existent. But see, the devil has whispered fear into our hearts in regards to our freedoms. 
he has tricked us into believing that fighting for our personal gain and comfortability is what we are called to do instead of fighting for the forward movement of the gospel of Jesus Christ. There's a mindset. Well, as I close, I'm getting ahead of myself. Let me close. Miss Sarah, if you would like to come up. As I close, there is a few points I'd like to make a few thoughts and then a question that I would like to end with. But there is a mindset that has run through our culture today that says God just wants us to be happy. That is such a first world American mindset that the gospel does not teach. Jesus did not die so that we could be happy. Jesus died so that we could be made holy. And Jesus will sacrifice our happiness if that means making us holy. And he will make us miserable in our lives if that's what it takes for us to let go of the idols of our lives and rid us of our sin. That is the conviction of the Lord. So I want to close with one question. Well, maybe two questions. And it is a question that I've been wrestling with. And to be honest, I'm not sure I can give you guys an authentic answer from my own life. Because it is a question that finds the dark corners of my own soul. And when, we, when I begin to dwell on it too long, I get uncomfortable. It wreaks havoc on my conscience and it begins to show me the trueness of my own heart. And here's the question. What are you willing to give up in order to truly follow Jesus? What sacrifices are you willing to make to do what God has commanded of you? See, Jesus does not ask for half-heartedness, and he will not share his throne with anyone or anything. And Scripture says anyone that puts their hand to the plow and looks back is not fit for the kingdom of God. In Matthew chapter 16, 24 through 26, Jesus told his disciples, if anyone would come after me, let him deny himself, take up his cross, and follow me. For whoever would save his life will lose it, but whoever loses his life for my sake will find it. For what will it profit a man if he gains the whole world but forfeits his soul? Or what shall a man give in return for his soul? What idols do you have in your life that are keeping you from following Jesus with all that you have? Are you worshiping God with your life or are you worshiping at the altar of self? If I'm being honest, most days I kneel, I kneel down at the altar worshiping the idol of self. Is today the day we will let go of those idols and truly follow Jesus as Lord and Savior? Maybe today you're here and you've never accepted Jesus as your Lord and Savior. Maybe your whole life you have been idolizing self. You have never relinquished the idol of self in your life. Is today the day that you will surrender your life to the Lordship of Jesus Christ and place him as king on the throne of your heart? Now I'm going to pray and I will... Pray to close, but the one thing I ask us as a church and the one thing that I've been asking myself all week as I've been working on this is, 
We just need to examine ourselves. Examine our hearts. What are we holding on to that we are not willing to let go of? What are we holding on to that is keeping us from fully following Jesus and what he has called us to do? I'm going to pray, and when I get done praying, the music will play, this altar will be open. What idols do you need to come lay down this morning? And maybe for some of you, it's laying down the ultimate idol, and that's of self and surrendering your life to the Lordship of Jesus Christ and believing him as your Lord and Savior and allowing him to save you. Let's pray. Lord, I pray that you bring conviction to our lives and you open our eyes to the idols of our life. I pray as a church we begin to strip away the societal expectations, the cultural mindsets, the first world problems and the first world mindsets that the American culture has built inside of our church systems and we follow you with our life. And we fully rest on the promise that is found in Matthew 16, 25, and you said yourself, for whoever would save his life will lose it, but whoever is willing to lose his life for you, for your sake, will find it. Lord, I pray that in this moment we are examining ourselves, and I pray that your conviction is coming in to our hearts, and you are about to change lives in a mighty way. In Jesus' name, amen.